You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Man is by his very nature and at his heart an idolater. The history of mankind is a history of idolatry. It started with Adam. After he sinned in the garden, God came into the garden and tried to appear to Adam. And where was Adam? Nowhere to be found. He was hiding from the one true God. And that type of aversion to the one true God and a desire to replace the worship of the one true God with the worship of anything else carried on down through all of Adam's descendants, even to us. Cain, Adam's son, didn't even have to be more than one generation before this aversion to worshiping God on his terms manifested itself. Cain and Abel, Abel presented the sacrifice which was acceptable to God. Cain decided that he didn't want to worship God as he was on his terms, and instead he was going to offer to God a sacrifice or an offering that was on his own terms. And so Cain did so. Ended up, out of jealousy, killing his brother. And that progressed through till Noah, until on Noah's day there was only one righteous man on the face of the whole earth, Noah. And God preserved him. And after the flood, the history of the nations is a history of idolatry. All of the nations went their own way and worshipped their own gods all the way through to Abraham, and Abraham had to be called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol worshiper, and God made with him a covenant. And, of course, his descendants were not much more faithful than anybody who had been before Abraham. His descendants were idolaters as well, brought them up out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And the Israelites, the Jews, had seen the mighty hand of the God of heaven in delivering them from Egypt, in opening up the Red Sea, and bringing them through, and sustaining them in the wilderness, in providing for them everything they need, and they get to the mountain of God, and what is their response? Moses goes up onto the mountain, and while God is inscribing in tablets of stone, Thou shalt worship no other gods before Me, Thou shalt make no graven images, the nation is at the foot of the mountain doing what? Making graven images and worshiping an idol in the form of a golden calf. And the history of the nation of Israel is a history of idolatry, captivity, repentance from idolatry, and then deliverance. And then right back to idolatry, captivity, repentance from idolatry, and deliverance. Idolatry, always going back to idolatry. The history of mankind is a history of idolatry. And we do it in our day too, don't we? We don't worship golden calves. We just worship the gold. It doesn't matter what form it's in. You can fashion it in the form of stocks or bonds or however you want. We don't care what shape it's in. We don't care what it looks like. That's just what we worship. And, of course, we don't worship gods of pleasure. We just go for the pleasure. Skip the middleman, the god that represents the pleasure. We just worship the pleasure. We don't represent gods that are fashioned after our own image. We just worship ourselves. And the history of mankind is a history of idolatry. Man is at his very heart a worshiper. And he has in his heart an aversion to the one true God. And so he will replace the worship of the one true God with the worship of anything that is presented to him. And today we worship self. 
We don't have images. We don't have shrines. We don't have statues, statues in our houses or in our homes. The worship of self is the most subtle, the most addicting, and the most enslaving idolatry of all. It's subtle because while we worship ourselves, we can truthfully say that we don't bow down to any graven image, can't we? We can worship ourselves without physically bowing down before anything. And so we can say quite truthfully, we don't bow down to idols, and yet self sits on the throne. Self calls the shots. Self makes the rules. Self gets the glory. Self receives the credit. And it is an addicting idolatry and an enslaving idolatry because man cannot get enough of himself. We can't love ourselves too much. And we live in a world that tells us we don't love ourselves nearly enough as we should. We're actually far better than we think we are. We have ego problems. Do you know anybody who has an ego problem? Do you know how anybody who has a low self-esteem? I've never met somebody who has a low self-esteem. I certainly have not, never met somebody who has a self-esteem that is informed biblically. A lost person, I mean. The problem is not that we hate ourselves. The problem is that we love ourselves and we worship ourselves. And the love of self and the worship of self is more enslaving and more addictive than any narcotic on earth because we just can't get enough of it. It got so bad in the nation of Israel that the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 50, verse 38, the land is full of idols and they are mad over their fearsome idols. Mad. Jeremiah said the land is full of idols and the people are insane over their idols. They have actually gone crazy for the things that they worship. And do you notice as you read through the Old Testament that you never see the children of Israel grumbling against their idols? Who do they grumble against? The Lord. Now the idols could do no wrong. The golden calf, the shrines, whatever it was that they set up to worship, the idol could do no wrong. It was this mean ogre in heaven who had drugged them out into the wilderness to kill them by starvation and, and drought. It was this mean God in heaven who was dragging them out there just so He could let them perish in the wilderness. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt. Why is God so cruel to drag us out here and to let, them, let us perish? They never grumbled against their idols. You and I do the same thing. We set up the idols in our hearts, the things that we worship and that we want to bow down to, and we never grumble against them for not providing for us like we should or performing like they should. Instead, we grumble against the Lord. They're mad over fearsome idols. And don't think that, don't think that this was just the problem with the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Why? Because what they could know of God was seen in God in all of creation. And instead of bowing down to that one true God, man instead turned his heart and his mind and his eyes, a very willful decision toward that which is not God and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so all mankind is condemned. You want to see a picture of insanity over idols? You have to turn to Acts chapter 19. It's in the city of Ephesus. You're going to see people who have gone nuts over their idols. Acts chapter 19. And we, we left last week with having found out who was responsible for this riot that is about to take place in Ephesus. It's a man named Demetrius. He was the, the silversmith, um, the president of the silversmith guild. He was a leader of some sorts in Ephesus, and he was bringing much profit to the craftsmen. And in a quite honest and quite frank statement, he says to the craftsmen whom he's gathered together, our prosperity depends upon this business. And if we don't get this Paul out of town, we are all going to suffer financially. 
And we don't want the great goddess Artemis to be dethroned from her magnificence, and we don't want the temple to be seen as worthless, and of course we don't want this trade of ours, this reputation of ours, to fall into disrepute. We have to do something against Paul, and that's where we left it. We pick it up in verse 28. When they, that is the craftsmen whom Demetrius was speaking with, when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! There's a riot in Ephesus. I want you to notice this opposition that the Apostle Paul faces and that is raised against the Gospel. And I want you to notice three characteristics of it. First of all, I want you to notice that the mob was characterized by rage. What does verse 28 say? When they heard this, they were filled with rage. The word is thumos. The word was used to describe a hot, passionate, volatile anger that would boil up and then subside, and then boil up again and then subside. It was used to describe a a very passioned anger, not just a a righteous indignation of sorts, but actually a a very emotional, passionate anger. They were filled with rage. And so they began to shout out their ceremonial chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when they would get together to worship Artemis, they weren't like you and I where we sing songs and and pay attention to the reading of Scripture publicly and hear the preaching of the Word. They would get together and they would have these rallies where everybody would gather in the temple and they would cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they they would chant this chant over and over again for long periods of time. That was how they worshiped Artemis. And so these craftsmen are filled with this rage and they rush out into the streets screaming out this cry, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And what I want you to notice, friends, is this is the typical response of the world toward Christianity. Rage. Acts chapter 7, Stephen got up and gave his masterful defense before the, the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. And what was their response? Acts chapter 7, verse 58 says, When they heard this, They were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. Who's the they? Who gnashed their teeth at Stephen? Paul. He was among the crowd and when they stoned him, he held their coats. He was anything but an innocent bystander. They heard what Stephen said and they were filled with rage. And they gnashed their teeth at him and then they tried to kill him. That's the type of rage that Paul's facing. It shouldn't surprise us that the world would respond to Christianity like this because that's what Jesus promised. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And know that it hated me before it hated you. He he promised us hatred. 
He said the world is going to be filled with rage. And that's exactly what we see. When the gospel comes into a culture or to a people, it confronts the idols of our heart, doesn't it? It confronts us with the glory of God and the majesty of His sovereignty. And it confronts us with our own sin and His holiness. And all of the idols that we worship and all of the things that we hold dear all of a sudden have to be swept aside because Jesus says, you must have Me and Me alone. And you have to put your hand to the plow and not look back. And you have to be willing to give up everything for the kingdom because the cost of obedience and the cost of discipleship is more than you can possibly bear. And so it requires that all of our idols fall down. And how does the world respond to that? Filled with rage. Why? Because sinful man, just like Adam, cannot stand the presence of a holy God. doesn't want a holy God. wants a God of his own making, a God of his own doing, a God of his own fashioning. And so they're filled with rage. That's the typical response of the world to the gospel. And so they rush out into the what was called the Arcadian Way. It was a main street, and it was uh, the street alongside of which all of the marketplace was, and the porticos and the little shops and places where you could go and you could buy things. You could buy little trinkets of Diana and uh, Artemis and the shrines of the temple there and all of the religious paraphernalia, you know, the little bumper stickers and all that stuff. You could buy those right along the Arcadian Way. And it wouldn't have been hard for them to gather a crowd because as they rush out into the streets and, and the Arcadian Way connected the harbor to the theater. And the theater is on the front of your bulletin. If you got a bulletin when you came in this morning, you can see the picture of the theater that is still in Ephesus today. And if you look at the out in front of the theater, you can see the Arcadian Way, the main street that went right through the marketplace of Ephesus and came right down to the theater. That's where they would have gathered a crowd, shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And everybody would have wanted to know, what's all the, what's all the disturbance about? Here comes Demetrius, who was the head of the craftsmen, and all of these craftsmen, and they are angry, they are hopping mad, they are emotional, and they're crying out and they're shouting out, and people are alongside the streets, and they're like, well, we will want to be left out of this. So they joined the cry. And you know how mobs work? The more and more people you get involved in something, the more and more people want to get involved in something, right? You don't want to be the lone guy standing out, not wondering what this is about, and kind of keeping your distance. So it's not difficult for him to gather a crowd. He gathers a crowd to such an extent that they rush with one accord, Luke says, right into the theater. The theater would have seated 25,000 people. 25,000 people could sit in that theater. That's about half of a football stadium. That's quite a number of people. Now, do you think it was full? Luke doesn't say it was full, does he? But he does give us two little pieces of information. He says the city was filled with confusion. A city of 250,000 people and everybody wanted to know what was involved with this. Everybody heard what was going on. And they picked the largest building in the city to have their meeting in. And this was the only place that could house all of the people who wanted to chant out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so they rushed into the theater with one accord, shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. This was no small disturbance, Luke says. My impression or my, my suspicion is that it was probably almost filled to capacity. It's a lot of people. And they have filled the theater. Now, are they there to hear a rational defense? Are they there to logically engage Paul and his ministry and his message? Do they want to hear what Paul has to say? Do they want to evaluate his arguments, listen to truth, and have a logical debate with the man? Is that what they want? What are they after? They're not rational. 
They're not anybody to be reasoned with. How do I know that? Because Luke says they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus and dragged them into the theater. Now listen, if they could have found Paul, they would have dragged him into the theater. That's who they wanted. That's what Demetrius said. This Paul persuades and turns away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Do you remember his accusation against Paul? They're after Paul. They can't find Paul, so they'd grab the next best thing, which is Gaius and Aristarchus. Gaius is a common name. There was probably many Gaiuses around. This is not the Gaius that we read about in Corinth, who was the city administrator, probably another Gaius. Aristarchus is not a common name, and we find that Aristarchus actually travels with Paul through the rest of the book of Acts. He's with Paul. He's with Paul when he's arrested in Jerusalem. He leaves on the ship with Paul when they send him off to Rome. Aristarchus goes with them. At the end of Paul's, at the end of the book of Acts, when Colossians and Philemon are written, Paul mentions Aristarchus and calls him my fellow prisoner. Aristarchus was like Dr. Luke. He was with Paul the whole time. And they are men who have been supporting Paul in his ministry and enabling Paul and serving alongside of him, and they can't find the man they're after, so they grab Aristarchus and they grab Gaius and they drag them into the theater with them, and somehow at some point, Paul figured out what was going on. Paul had heard about it. How did Paul hear? The whole city was filled with confusion. You think it took long for word to get to Paul, what this was all about? You think it took long for word to get to Paul that his traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, were down into this theater and the mob was gathering around and they were shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians? And look what Luke says of Paul. Luke says in verse 29, The city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater. Verse 30, Paul wanted to go into the assemblies and the disciples would not let him. Paul said, I want in. He's not in the theater. He's somewhere else out in the city of Ephesus. But he hears what's going on. He hears that Gaius is in there, that Aristarchus is in there, and Paul says, I want to go in. Now one of two things has to be true of Paul. He's either very courageous or he's insane. This is a dangerous situation. Do you remember the last time Paul met with an idol-worshipping mob? Do you remember what happened to him? It's in the city of Lystra. Walked into the city and he healed a man. And the people began to say, the the gods have become like men and come down to us. And and they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest from the temple of Zeus rushed out down to the temple and he grabbed the oxen and the garlands and brought them out to sacrifice to Paul. And Paul preached the gospel to them and he told them we're men like you and he presented truth to them and Luke says that he barely restrained them from offering sacrifices to them. And how long did that last? That long. till some Jews came from Antioch and turned over the crowd and they dragged uh, stoned Paul and drug him outside the city and left him for dead. That was the last time Paul met with an idol-worshipping Gentile crowd. And here's another idol-worshipping Gentile crowd, a far bigger one. They're far more upset than these idol-worshippers in Lystra were when they stoned him. And what does Paul say? I want to go in. He's thinking of two things. First, he's got to do something to rescue Gaius and Aristarchus because they're obviously in danger. But second, there's something else here. I think Paul wants to cash in on. He's got a captive audience of 25,000 people. This is a dream come true for the Apostle Paul. If he manages to quiet the crowd just enough so that he can make his defense, the Apostle Paul is going to turn this into an evangelistic opportunity. This is a preacher's dream. 
the opportunity to present the gospel to 25,000 people. This is probably more people than the Apostle Paul ever had opportunity to preach to at any time in his life. And he wants right down in the middle of the lion's dead, he wants right down in the middle of the fray, right in the heart of the action, because he wants to rescue his friends and he wants to present the gospel. And the disciples said, no, Paul. Now, was he insane or was he courageous or was there something else going on here? I want you to look at Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Probably just across the page or on the other side of the page from where you're at. This is Paul's mindset. This is his perspective. If you could boil down the life and the attitude and the heart of the Apostle Paul into one statement that's given to us in the book of Acts, this would be it. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I do not consider my life as dear to myself. You see that? Did the Ephesians know that? He's talking to the Ephesian elders. Did the elders in Ephesus know that? They had seen it. Paul says, I don't consider my life as something to be spared at all costs. I'm willing to go into the theater. I'm willing to face the crowd or the mob. And if they kill me, they kill me. If I suffer, I suffer. He didn't pass up opportunities. He didn't pass up ministry chances. He didn't pass up things that he had opportunities to do simply because he guarded his own life or his own well-being. I do not count my life as dear to myself. So Paul said, I want in. Let me into the theater. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said this, we are all too much occupied with taking care of ourselves. Isn't that true? We are all too much occupied with taking care of ourselves. He goes on and says that we... We shun the difficulties of excessive labor. And frequently behind the entrenchment of taking care of our constitution, we do not half as much as we ought. A minister of God is bound to spurn the suggestions of ignoble ease. It is his calling to labor, and if he destroys his constitution, I for one only thank God that he permits us the high privilege of so making ourselves living sacrifices. That's right. We take the excuse of that wouldn't be good for me, It wouldn't be comfortable. I'm not up to that. My body can't handle that. My mind can't handle that. My schedule can't handle that. And we shun the responsibilities of labor and of ministry. And Spurgeon says, it's time that we not care what happens to our Constitution. Paul says, I don't consider my life as dear to myself. Let me into the theater. And the disciples said, Paul, you can't go in there. No, I want in. Paul, we're not letting you into the theater. I've got to go in. Gaius is in there. Aristarchus is in there. I want to present the gospel. And the disciples would not let him go into the theater. They had to, I don't know if they had to physically constrain Paul, or if they had to block the doors, or if they had to hold him down. What did they have to do? Do you think Paul is somebody to be reasoned with? Do you think it's easy to persuade Paul to do something he doesn't want to do? How easy do you think that is? Paul was like a bulldog. And when he got his mind set on something, he did it. He wasn't easily persuaded. How do I know that? Because Luke says, also verse 31, some of the Asiarchs who were his friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Who are the Asiarchs? This is an interesting group of people. The Asiarchs belonged to wealthy, noble families. And they were delegates or representatives from different cities in the empire where emperor worship went on. 
Cities like Pergamum and Smyrna and Ephesus all had temples where they worshipped the emperor because the emperor of Rome claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be deity. And so it was the Asiarch's job. They were appointed by the cities to be their delegates. And they would meet and they were sort of this league of men, quasi-religious, quasi-political type of organization, whose job it was to oversee the worship of the emperor. Their job was to attend all of the religious functions in the province of Asia. And there were many of them. They served one-year terms and then they were off and they were called Asiarchs for life. And their job was to be in Ephesus and to oversee the worship of the emperor, the Caesar. And they had, I think they were in the theater. How do I know that? Because it says they were sending to Paul repeatedly, urging him not to come into the theater. Paul, don't come in here. This crowd is not going to be friendly to you. You're in danger. And they're trying to save his life. Now, I think it's significant that Paul was friends with the Asiarchs. You know why that's significant? Because one of the accusations against Paul was that this guy is bad for Rome. He preaches another king. He preaches against Nero. He, he refuses to worship the emperor. This guy is subversive to the government. And here is Paul, friends with the Roman representatives, the government representatives in Ephesus. And they're trying to save his life. These are not believers. These are just people that Paul is friends with. They don't belong to the church. They're emperor worshipers. But they don't see Paul as a threat. The only one who saw Paul as a threat, as a threat was who? Demetrius. And that was because only because Paul was affecting his pocketbook. But the Asiarchs didn't see him as a threat. The crowd was filled with rage. I want you to notice the second characteristic of the crowd. They were filled with confusion. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with confusion. Look at verse 32. Then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. The city was confused. And here's a, a half of a football stadium filled with people and they are piping hot mad. They are whipped up in this mob emotional frenzy. They are into this. They are shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're about ready to lynch Gaius and Aristarchus, whom they brought into the theater. And all of this emotion and all of this noise and this anger, and yet if you were to walk into the middle of the theater and ask somebody, why are you here? Luke says the majority didn't even know for what reason they'd come together. Why are you here? Well, that's a good question. Not sure exactly what it is. I mean, I was just minutes ago I was out in the marketplace standing by the street and these guys rushed in. Hey, this is let's join the crowd. They jumped into the crowd. We're in the theater. We've been shouting this out. Well, what do you expect to be the outcome of this big gathering? Well, I'm not sure what the outcome is supposed to be. Well, how do you feel about this? Hey, we're piping hot mad. We're upset. At whom? Not really sure. I mean, it's, it's almost humorous. The majority did not even know why they were there. If you ask them, who's, the, who's your target? Who are you angry at? They wouldn't have known. Listen, friends, the enemy thrives on confusion. Demetrius has to be happy that most of them don't know why they're there. Because if all of them had known the reason that they were there, what would they have known? They would have known we're here because Demetrius is going to suffer financially if Paul stays in Ephesus. He doesn't want them to know that. He's happy if they're confused. So is the enemy of our souls. He thrives when we're confused about doctrine, confused about church, confused about the Lord, confused about false religions, confused about false teaching. The more confusion there is amongst God's people or amongst any people, the more the enemy can thrive. Because God is not the author of confusion, but the enemy is. 
They don't even know why they're there. The city is filled with confusion. Now the stadium is filled with confusion. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Some are shouting one thing, some are shouting another, and the enemy's having a heyday. But it's easier to manipulate a thousand people than it is to manipulate one, isn't it? Now, if I come over to your house this afternoon and sit down for a cup of coffee and it's just me and you and we're sitting there talking, I, I would find it very difficult to whoop you up into a... Whip you up, not whoop you up. <laughs> I might find it difficult to whoop you up too, but it would be difficult to whip you up into an emotional frenzy and get you really passionate about something. But you put a real charismatic person in front of a crowd of a thousand people and what have you, what have you got? Promise Keepers Convention. Everybody in this big emotional frenzy. Some are really not sure what they're there for, but they get caught up in the emotion of the moment. It's characterized by confusion. Not really sure what we're here for. To go back to the illustration I used last week with intelligent design, you know how many people there are that oppose intelligent design who have no idea what the issues are? Have no idea what it is. Have no idea what it's based on. Have no idea what it's all about. They have no idea about Christianity or creationism or intelligent design, but they're opposed to it. Why? Because they joined the mob frenzy and they shout themselves hoarse over opposition to whatever truth is there. And yet if you were to ask them, why are you opposed to this? Most of them wouldn't be able to give you a reason. And if they did give you a reason, it would be an, a completely ununderstandable and unintelligible because they have no idea what the issues are. They have no idea what it's all about, but they're caught up in the frenzy of it. Confusion. Listen, when you confront somebody with the, on, about the idols of their heart, you'll be met with rage and you'll be met with confusion. They don't know the truth, know anything about the truth, and when they try and tell you what you think you believe or what you're telling them, it, they don't understand anything about it. Rage and confusion. Notice the third thing that characterized the mob, and this is at the end of that passage, beginning in verse 33. Intolerance. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The crowd did not know why they had come together, but some of them thought it was Alexander. Some of Who's Alexander? Well, he's somebody that the Jews put forward to make a defense. These Jews are the Jews from the synagogue. These are not believers. These are Jews, synagogue Jews. And the synagogue Jews had their man on the scene, Alexander, who they probably just chose the most articulate and gifted speaker they could find. They said, we want you to go out there and make a defense. So Alexander gets up, and he goes to make a defense. Now, why are the Jews who opposed Paul and had kicked Paul out of the synagogue, why are they putting up their guy to make a defense to this crowd? Why would they do that? You know why they're doing it? They're trying to distance themselves from Paul. Here is this monotheistic Jew who has opposed the worship of Artemis and done great harm to the temple and to Demetrius' business, and they want to distance themselves from him. Alexander gets up to make a defense, not a defense of Paul. The Jews, the unbelieving Jews, had put him up to make a defense of the Jews. Now, I don't know what it was Alexander said. Maybe the first thing he said was, <clears throat> as a Jew, that's all he would have had to say. Luke says the minute they recognized that he was a Jew, all of a sudden they stopped shouting one thing, one, one guy one thing, and one guy another thing, and a single outcry arose, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now why wouldn't they listen to Alexander? Do you think that an Artemis worshiper cares whether it's a Jew that opposes Artemis worship or whether it's Paul that opposes Artemis worship? 
They don't care. To them, there's no difference between Paul and Christianity and Jews and Judaism. Both of them worship an invisible God and both of them are opposed to idolatry. Both Paul and the Jews agreed with this one thing, that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And so when they recognized that he was a Jew, they didn't care that he was going to get up and say, hey, we're with you in opposing Paul. They don't care about that. All they want to do is shout out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see how intolerant they are? They don't want to listen to anybody's defense. They don't want to listen to anybody's argument. All they want to do is shout out what's on their mind. And they will not listen to reason, and they will not listen to Alexander give his defense. Now, do you think if Paul had been in that crowd that he would have been able to get them to quiet down? They're not going to listen to Paul either. Most of them don't even know what, that, that he's the reason they're there. They think it's Alexander because the Jews put him forward. And when he goes to reason with them and to talk with them, they just begin to shout him down so that he has to just step off the stage altogether. You ever notice how the people who raise the tolerance banner the highest are the most intolerant of people? You ever notice that? We want tolerance in our workplace, tolerance in our school place, tolerance in our political system, tolerance in the media, tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. But you stand up and present Christ and you'll find out that there's one thing that they're absolutely intolerant of. And that's the truth. That's the way this crowd is. Not only filled with rage, and not only filled with confusion, but they are filled with intolerance. They want to shout out and they will not listen to anybody tell them anything differently. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to be reasoned with. So they shout out for two hours. Two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to shout out even for one hour? Great is Jesus Christ. You'd get bored with that in a hurry, wouldn't you? This crowd didn't. For almost two hours, they shouted out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over for two monotonous hours. You say, they're insane. Exactly. They're mad over their fearsome idols. That is the condition of sinful, fallen man without Christ. Mad over his fearsome idols. How can that be? Ephesians 4 tells us that man is darkened in his understanding, darkened in his mind, separated from the life of God, and without any kind of understanding. And so he's crazy. Crazy over idols. The mob met Paul and his message with rage, with confusion, and with intolerance. And friends, if you ever have opportunity to present Christ to the world, if you take a stand for truth, you're going to be met with those three things. Rage, confusion, and intolerance. It shouldn't surprise you because nothing has changed. But listen, the only thing that the heathens could do to Paul was to shout themselves hoarse. That's all they could do. Just shout and shout and shout and shout. And after two hours, finally they would be hoarse. That's all they could do to Paul. Because that's all the heathenism can do to God and to the truth is just shout itself hoarse. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. This is an awesome example to us of what the Lord Jesus promised us would happen when we stand for truth and when we present your word. Father, we pray that you would give to us the courage to confront the lost world with the idols of their heart and to keep in mind that what awaits us is that rejection and that intolerance to the truth and that hatred for your righteousness 
And we pray, Father, that we would not be discouraged by such a response, but would stand, that you'd give us the the strength to stand and the courage to stand and give us the grace to be like Paul, to not consider our lives as dear to ourselves, but to finish our ministry and to finish the course that you've given to us to testify boldly and solemnly to the gospel of your grace. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the grace that makes all of this possible and sustains us each and every moment. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.